This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, founder of the uh, podcast Transformative Principle and author of the books School X and How to Be a Transformative Principle. I am a former principal myself at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org. And I will bring myself around to the mission statement, Jethro, and we'll do that. So the Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyberethics, a 501c3 independent nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyberethics as a positive social force through research, curricula development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. Greetings right. there. Happy Monday. Happy Monday, and it, I am very much acting like it's Monday, so there you go. <laughs> you sure are. That's all right. Well, well we're, we're, we're on board. We are. We're excited to have uh, Dr. Cheryl Shakeshaft from Virginia Commonwealth University here today. So, Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Well, if you wouldn't mind starting out, just giving a little uh, bit of background information about you and what it is that you do at Virginia Commonwealth, that would be great. I'm a professor of educational leadership at Virginia Commonwealth. I mostly teach doctoral students. Uh, um, my research, uh, which is really why I'm here, I think, is about um, sexual misconduct by adults who work in schools directed toward students and how that happens, um, 
how we can stop it, uh, what the patterns are, and also how uh, technology uh, has changed the way the patterns work and some of the issues there. Well, that's obviously such a perfect connection to what we tried to do on this show, Charles. So I think we'll have a lot to chat about. Let me put a framework on this for the listeners, though. When when did you start working on this general uh, intellectual area? I started working on it in the late 1980s. I had a, a high school principal who was one of my students who came to me and who said, um, you know, I think one of my teachers is having sex with students and I don't know what to do. Can you help me? Um, I, I sort of looked at him and said, uh, well, I, I don't know. Uh, why do you think I could help you? And he said, well, you're a feminist. I figured that you would know the answers to these things. <laughs> I said, well, I'm, I'm not sure that covers it all, but let's figure this out. So we, we did. Uh, we started looking up articles. There were some, not a lot, but there was a lot. Of, there were a lot of newspaper articles about people being arrested for having sex with their students. And together we worked together and he made some uh, decisions. We moved forward. The person was arrested, um, but that, that got me to thinking, well, how common is this? And if it's pretty common, why haven't we learned a lot about it? And do we know what to do about it? And what should we do about it? So I started doing a number of studies, first just documenting prevalence, um, in different ways, and then trying to look at um, prevention. And now, uh, many years later, I, I, in the study I'm working on now is a prevention study looking at an ecological model of prevention that's funded by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So along the way, um, we've had some conferences. We, we started an organization back in the late 80s, early 90s in there. Um, called Sesame, um, and I can talk about that in a little bit. Uh, uh, I was just one of the beginning people, but there are tons of people who've been involved in working on that, in including <laughs> uh, Frederick Lane himself. And, um, and we've you know, really tried to, to work on this issue, uh, put it in a proper perspective, and also figure out why we haven't um, stopped the sexual abuse of kids by adults who work in school, and what can we do to, to make that happen? That's so, interesting. Let, let me just please. jump in real quick, Jethro, because the reason I, I wanted to put a time frame on this, Cheryl, is because of the technology piece specifically, and, and I assume that Jethro will lead into some of this, but if, you're, if you were beginning to look at this in the late 80s, really at that point, we're still relatively early in the days of the PC revolution. And the World Wide Web hasn't even really taken off, although it did exist at that point, uh, which a lot of people uh, don't realize. But I would think very quickly in terms of the research and the study that you were doing, you would begin to see the influence of digital communication. And then of course, the mobile communication coming in in the late 2000s. Yes, well, what was interesting is in the, in the beginning, the way we saw it was a lot of the grooming was done, uh, and in terms of grooming, meaning uh, um, getting kids to trust the person, the perpetrator, because it's not it's not a, a pattern where somebody just jumps on somebody and that's it out of the bushes. You know, these are 
these are people who are getting the, the student to trust them, to care about them, to be to feel comfortable with them, also grooming their colleagues and the parents. But in the beginning, it might be little, write little notes, call them up on the telephone at home when they had their own telephone landlines. Uh, and then we went to mobile phones and that started to change things. We went to email, we went to you know, texting to Instagram, to Facebook before that. Um, I, I forget the one before Facebook, my, MySpace. My that's space, it. Yeah. MySpace, Facebook, texting. So uh, TikTok. So we've, we have lots of changes uh, in which someone who wants to have uh, uninterrupted and unobserved time with a student can. And the question for schools is how do we, how do we figure that out? How do we monitor that? How do we keep kids safe uh, in those spaces? And so, yeah, there's been a, it's particularly around the issues of, of um, getting the student to trust you and then move into a sexualized behavior. Um, that uh, most of it, but not all of it, much of it still occurs in the school, you know, face to face in person, um, but the but a lot of the planning and setting up occurs online. In addition, a lot of uh, a lot of the photography and exchanging pictures and exchanging, you know, intimate uh, uh, behaviors uh, occurs uh, that that way. Yeah. So I have two main questions to to get us started, um, and the first question is. Uh, how much is this happening, and is it happening more now than it was before? Well, what I have to say to you, unfortunately, is I don't know, and I don't know. But I'll tell you <laughs> why. I, I'll tell you why I don't know. Thanks, Charles. Uh, <laughs> we we don't have any real study, uh, real longitudinal studies of any of this. People don't collect these data in a uh, in a way that is helpful or useful, or at all. So we do have some studies that were done by the American Association of University Women in 2000 and 2004. And I took, and those studies were really about peer sexual misconduct, trying to find out how much peer harassment was going on in school, kid to kid. But I used their data sets to, to uh, find out what was happening with adults because the questions they asked were, has, has this ever happened to you? And they name a behavior. Somebody touched your breast when you didn't want it to, or somebody touched your your part, your body when you didn't want it. And they'd ask these questions. And then if the answer was yes, it would follow up with, well, who and when and where and how. And so the original AUW studies didn't really think about much about adults being named. It was about kids, but in fact, adults were named. And so I took that data and looked at the adult data, adult to student to see what. And about 10% of students, both male and female, reported that they had been targeted uh, uh, in sexually inappropriate ways on a, from a range of, uh, of, you know, sort of verbal, um, sexual talk, uh, visual masturbation in front of them, and, um, and then uh, actual touching and intercourse and, and behaviors like that. So about 10% of kids had experienced that. 10%? Uh, 10%. Wow. Yes. And, uh, but we've never had any follow-ups. 
the, the AUW did a 2000 and 2004 follow-up and the numbers were about the same. But after that, we've had no follow-ups and trying to get funding for that research turns out to be really difficult. Uh, people just don't want to fund it. It's not a feel-good thing and it's not a it's not a federal government priority. And so it's, it's tough to get that information. Yeah. So we, we have a few studies you know, in other places, or sometimes you look at the studies on social media usage and you can get some information from that, but it doesn't give you the, the proportions. Um, so I can't say whether it's gone up or down. Um, I, I have a feeling, I have more than a feeling, I, I, I'm willing to bet that the, the, the use of technology has changed it and that's happening more, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Uh, so my, my second question that's related to that is we've heard all of the scandal about the Catholic Church, for example, the, where priests were molesting kids and then just moved around. And I think we can safely assume that some of that is happening in schools, that when somebody finds out, they just get the teacher just gets moved to another place um, if they haven't done something that warrants them getting arrested. And so why so much outrage around the Catholic Church and you're having a hard time finding funding to know how much this is happening, but can reasonably be certain that it's about 10% of kids where this is happening. Why that discrepancy between those two institutions? Meaning the Catholic Church and public education. I don't know why the discrepancy. I mean, one might speculate there's more Catholic bias. I don't know if that's true. Uh, people might not be willing to, to be able to face that the school might not be safe at times. Um, I think it depends on on who's in office at the time. Uh, when Republicans are in office, there actually is more attention paid to misconduct by teachers than when my own party is in office. Um, so, I mean, there are some differences, but um, I, I don't know the answer to that. Could you ask me some more questions? I don't know the answers to. <laughs> <laughs> we have, yes, we have, we've got a lot. <laughs> so far, got a long... so far, I'm zero for three. <laughs> you well, know. that's that's not remotely fair, Charles, because I know how hard you've been working yes. on all of this. So it's not for dint of effort. But you know, look, I'll put my two cents in on on the Catholic issue. I I would suspect that there's an element about it that um, has to do with the genders involved, you know, the predominant genders, there are exceptions in all directions, but I think that there's arguably more outrage if young men are, are the victims of abuse, you know, by older men. But again, this is all speculative at this point. We don't really know. I think that, you know, I would agree with you anecdotally, Cheryl, that it seems to me that the incidence of let's just say at the very least inappropriate interactions between educators and students has dramatically increased. Even if you know we're going from 10% to 20%, that's still a dramatic increase. Yeah, and, that increase. <laughs> and technology drives that. And the big, big difference is that when I was a kid, if a teacher called my home, my parents knew about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now with virtually every single high school student having their own individual phone number, not even counting their individual IDs on social media. The, the playing field, if you will, for someone who is 
uh, predatory is vastly greater. Yes, absolutely. The, that's the drawback right there. And and I, I, I sense your frustration and I share your frustration about the challenges in getting the kind of funding that is needed to look at this, dare I use the word systemically, as opposed to on a case-by-case basis. And I, I think we do need to continue to try to raise awareness of the need to do that. Yeah, um, and I, I've had the opportunity to, to be involved in um, about 150 cases where I served as an expert witness. And, and I would agree to do that as long as I could use the information for my research, because this is not information you can get easily. If an incident happens in a school, um, they're not gonna talk to me. Uh, you <laughs> know, they're sure. not, I, I, I'm not gonna be able to understand because I'm in the, I'm in the business of schools and to try to get people to, um, you know, to, to, to make schools safer places. So I'm trying to study what about the organization is it that mm -hmm. allows this to happen? So by, by being an expert witness, what that means is that I get to read the depositions, I get to read the policies, I get to look at all of the hiring practices and the things that happen. And it, it lets me look at the organizational decisions that get made and why people don't report, even if they've seen something and what those issues are. And so I sort of look at this issue as a structural issue, as a, as a systemic issue of an organization. And why would it be that, uh, that this could happen in a, in a school where most people in that school are people who really care about kids and really wanna do the best things and want kids to thrive. So how could that happen? So, so I've been able to get data in other ways uh, not necessarily the way my traditional um, researcher mind would have worked, but I've been able to collect data in other ways that actually give me kind of a, a very insider view of, of, of what goes on and what happens uh, structurally within the organization. This is a really fascinating point, Charles. I'm glad that you're pointing this out because if, if it was completely um, shunned that you participate in any of this kind of behavior, and socially, people were calling it out and saying that's not okay and addressing it before it became something bigger to where you actually did something, then that would be very beneficial and people would not continue doing it because it would be socially unacceptable and they'd be quote unquote in trouble before they even did anything too far down the path. And what you're saying is that the structures in a school district have allowed people to continue going down that path and not getting caught or feeling like this was wrong until they had already committed heinous acts. Is that a fair summary of what you said? Precisely. That's exactly what happens. Um, the wow. way schools are set up, first of all, just in terms of uh, closed rooms, everybody in their own classroom, um, not a lot of time together to make comments to each other or to talk about these issues. Secondly, the notion of you know uh, not judging a colleague. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody does things a different way. So, for instance, a lot of times when when I have been able to interview uh, teachers uh, uh, where one of their colleagues had just been arrested and uh, for sexual abuse or been convicted, 
I would say, did you see anything? You, you're across the, uh, the hall in a class. And they'd say, yeah, you know, he was in there a lot. The door was shut. The same person was going in all the time, would come in early after school, would be there after, you know, early in the morning after school. Um, I, I thought it seemed a little weird. And you'd say, well, why didn't you say anything? And they'd say, well, you know, I, I didn't know if anything was going on. I mean, it did seem weird, but I, I didn't know for sure. So I wouldn't want to ruin a colleague's reputation if I was wrong. But of course, what does happen is you, uh, you deeply impact a child's life by not taking that chance. And then if I would ask them, well, well would you do those things? The person always says, no, I would never, I would never be, have a child in my uh, class alone in the morning and after school with the door shut and things. So, so they, they, it would be things they wouldn't do, but the culture is such that they don't feel safe or don't feel that it's, that, that it's the appropriate thing to do to call someone out or to report someone or to, or to bring it up to the whole school about just what do we believe in terms of our behaviors with kids? What are the boundaries? What can't we cross? What can we cross? When we see somebody crossing, what are we doing? And that, those conversations don't, don't occur very often in schools. Actually, Cheryl, I think this is a great place to talk a little bit about Sesame because one of the ways to approach this is to get states in particular to uh, adopt legislation that makes it harder to simply pass on an educator from one district to another, where there's some awareness that they may have done something inappropriate or in some sad cases, even criminal. And they, they just get thrown out into the marketplace and they move to some other jurisdiction. And the colloquially expression that people use, of course, is passing the trash. And I know that this is something that you and Terry Miller have been really active on with respect to Sesame. So tell us a little bit about that project and how it's going. Well, um, Terry's been phenomenal in the work she's done to, to, to move it along. Uh, I'll give you a little background. In the, in the early, late 80s and early 90s, I did a study of superintendents in New York State. And first I asked, asked them, um, have you ever had an incident where somebody has uh, uh, had sexual misconduct with a student? And if, if you have, are you willing to talk to me about it? And about 133 people said, uh, yes, they had, and yes, they were willing to talk about it. I don't know how many had, but weren't willing to talk about it, but I got 133 <laughs> superintendents who are willing to talk about what had happened. And they described you know, how they found out and what happened and what went on and whatever. But what was the most shocking thing was that they did just exactly what you described, passing the trash. They would say to the person, if you leave our district, we'll give you a recommendation uh, if someone calls up. Or if you leave our district, um, you know, we won't say anything. Or even I'm going to move you from the middle school to the elementary school. Mm. Uh, and that way, those children will be safe. But of course, what? they weren't. Or I'm going to move you from the elementary school to the high school. You know, so there, there were lots of ways they did it. But not one person, not one person. Um, actually, that's not true. There was one person who actually followed the person every place he went and called them up and told them that this was a problem. But everybody else said, no, we never contacted anyone. We didn't report. We didn't do, do anything. We just you know, took care of the problem so our kids would be safe. 
Um, but what happens is, is that when you, when you, uh, when you move the person out, you're just moving them into a place that they might also uh, sexually abuse and are more and are likely to sexually abuse. It's this, and so we have some things that have helped. So, for instance, we have uh, sex offender registries, but not everybody who abuses gets on a sex offender registry. Uh, and we found that a lot of those people continue to abuse. Um, and so what Terry has done is worked with legislators uh, to try to get them to pass state laws against passing the trash, that you can't do that. And that mm -hmm. if you do that, you can be prosecuted and you can uh, uh, have to defend yourself. She's also gotten help to work with uh, uh, national legislators to get uh, a part of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act to say that every state should have a law uh, against passing the trash. So every state in the country is supposed to have a state law that prevents that and has consequences uh, for doing that. And so that's been one of the things that, that SESAME has worked on. Uh, SESAME stands for Stop, uh, Stop Educator Sexual Abuse and Misconduct and Stop Educator Sexual Abuse <laughs> uh, Abuse, Misconduct and Exploitation, SESAME. And they have a on their website, they have a ton of resources and help for people. And then they're trying to do things nationally and at the state level uh, uh, to bring laws that will help schools feel more um, pressured to, to try to stop the sexual abuse of kids at schools by adults. Well, that sounds good. We'll put the URL, which is sesamenet.org in the show notes for this Great. Uh, so that people can go to it. I mean, it's analogous, Cheryl, it seems to me, to failure to report laws in general. Yes. yes so absolutely. that's the, the structure is exactly the same, I think, that there's an obligation. I mean, the failure to report goes directly to the safety of uh, individual educators, quote unquote, own children. But as NASDAQ, which, by the way, has a clearinghouse for a lot of these offenses, as NASDAQ has been trying to promote with its model code of ethics for educators, there's a broader duty on the part of educators, not just to their own children, but to children in general. Yes. And so this is clearly a violation of those ethical precepts for protecting kids. Absolutely. And, um, and Sesame is really doing, you know, working hard to do that. Mind you, Sesame is a volunteer organization uh, that uh, is run by people who care, uh, like Terry and, and, Fred, you're on the uh, advisory board, and um, and you know it's it's people who are giving up their time and, and putting a lot of effort into making a difference. And you know, this is I, I think this is such an important conversation. So I want to share a story of when my first year teaching, where I was I was working with kids, and it was my first faculty meeting, so just three weeks into the school year, and I had noticed something that if I put my hand on a student's arm as I was talking to them, then they would pay more attention and look at me in the eyes and things like that. And when I, sh when I shared that in this faculty meeting, I got the coldest looks and the most uncomfortable, awkward silence that I can ever remember in my whole life. And what that told me was, Jethro, that's not okay, and you're crossing a line. And nobody said, that's not okay, you're crossing a line but they sure gave me that impression. And I remember thinking, okay, that is 
I shouldn't do that anymore. And I was able to make that determination. And a few minutes ago, you said that somebody's, somebody, some people are concerned that they are going to ruin someone's reputation or ruin their career by saying some of these things. And so if you have a student coming into your classroom early before school and after school and your door is closed and, you know, you can't see in there, like that is, that's already far down the path, right? And if, if it was, if all it takes is silence to get someone to know that you're, you're crossing a line, you better stop, then that's great. And that's good enough to get people to change. But then when, when people start or continue going down that path and nobody says anything, then it's almost like we're giving them permission to keep doing it because if it was really wrong and, and I've heard this about addicts as, as well, that if, if it, if this was really wrong, then somebody else would be saying, stop this. And since nobody else is saying, stop this, then maybe it's okay. And I can keep doing it. Um, how much does that mentality work into these kind of situations? It works in a lot. You've made two really good points. Uh, one is that is that by not saying anything, we are giving people opportunities to expand that predilection or addiction or whatever and, and uh, build it and grow it. Okay, so part of it, it, if, if we stopped things, we could stop per people from moving down that path, maybe themselves. Okay, so that, and we know that we know that there's some ways that that by early on, uh, not allowing to take that step, that step, that step, uh, they then don't develop some of those. So, so what some people say is that it isn't just that schools allow this to happen, schools help people find this in themselves, which they might never have found. And the second thing is how kids see it. Kids say to me when I interviewed them, um, well, everybody saw what was going on. Uh, all the kids knew, uh, you know, they'd walk down the halls together. Uh, they'd be, uh, you know, really close. They were always together. They were always sitting at lunch together. They would always do this. All the teachers saw it. And so it must be okay, because if it weren't okay, um, the teachers and the principal would have said, you can't do this. So kids then think they're supposed to tolerate certain behaviors from adults, certain boundary crossings from adults, because nobody in the adult world is stopping them. So kids then make the assumption that if it weren't okay, um, that the adults would stop. So they'll say things like, well, you know, they're like just girlfriend and boyfriend. And that's okay in our school, you know. And, and so that's really important. And again, we don't have enough, enough education for kids to say, these are the things that can't happen. And if this happens to you or to your friend, you need to tell someone. And it has to be very concrete and specific. We can't just say inappropriate behaviors. You know, we have to be particular about it. And kids also, when they when they report, they don't come and report. They don't say, you know, I'd like to report a Title IX violation. And, right. <laughs> uh, there was uh, inappropriate behavior, and this is what happened, and whatever. They say things like, that person is really weird. I don't like to be around them. Or that's a creepy person. This person just, I, it's just, you know, they're just too, I don't know, too touchy-feely. I don't know. I just, they don't say it straight up. 
And so administrators who hear this or other teachers who hear this, if they don't understand what the codes is and what the words mean, they don't do anything. They just think the kid is saying they have a creepy teacher and they see the teacher and the teacher's their colleague and they think, yeah, that guy's okay, you know, or that woman is okay. Um, so, so we have to really understand the language of kids, but also just what you said, understand what allowing people to cross boundaries means in terms of kids recognition and also in terms of maybe developing a predator that might never have developed. So can you talk a little bit more about that idea? You said something like schools help people find this in themselves. I think that is very alarming to me as an educator but it makes sense. But could you dive into that a little bit more? Well, you think of addictions and you think of what facilitates an addiction. So I'm not a, an expert on, on why someone would sexually abuse. And I wanna make that clear because I study organizations, not, not really people, but we do know a little bit about addictive behavior. And the more you get, you know, the more you have addictive behavior, the more you do it, all right? And so, I mean, that's why we have 12 step programs to help people stop their addictive behavior and have, and have um, uh, mechanisms to help them keep stuff. And your addiction grows. So if you might have a, you know, you might not see yourself as somebody who's sexually attracted to a child or to a teenager or to somebody, but you cross a boundary uh, and then you sort of get hooked and it's it's exciting or it's you know here's a uh, someone who's young and who seems to be looking up to you and is interested or and so what happens if we don't stop those that that pleasure um uh interaction grows and then leads to other things and then leads to other things so so we can, I, I believe that in, and I, in the readings I've done that there are in many cases, we could keep people from finding those things in themselves and acting on them. Okay, because a lot of people don't start out thinking I'm going to have sex with my students. You know, they start out being lonely or, or liking a student or having a fun conversation with a student and then it leads to another thing and another thing. Well, Cheryl, that, that seems to me to be a really important point for people to reflect on. And we've talked about this, Jethro and I, on the show, that so many of the cases that I look at in terms of the research that I do begin in emotional vulnerability for one or both people involved. You know, it could be a student who's clearly having trouble at home or a teacher who's in marital issues, and they're looking for basic human comfort and emotional feedback. And, you know, it's just, it creates vulnerabilities that either intentionally in the case of grooming or even accidentally wind up being exploited. I, I want to loop back on a couple of things and then, and then talk about prevention. One of the articles that I highlighted in the most recent edition of the Cybertraps newsletter that I do arises out of a California school where you had an incredibly popular and seemingly effective teacher whose behavior was dismissed by the school for years because he was so well-liked by so many people, but at the same time was creating exactly those sensations and those feelings you were describing of, of students 
knowing there was something a little off, you know, in terms of how he interacted with female students and that many of the girls reported being creeped out. And that's not exactly the Title IX language, Mm -hmm. as you point out, but it is so squarely within the gut check of a child or a teenager in terms of sensing Mm -hmm. that there's something inappropriate going on. And so I do think we need to continue to educate uh, particularly administrators, you know, shout out to Jethro and his, his crew, but, but also to teachers, you know, colleagues as well, to have the cultural awareness to step up and say something. So that brings us, I think, to prevention. And that's such a great segue to the work you're doing right now. So who are you working with and what are they trying to do? So we have a, the uh, School of Education and the School of Medicine at Virginia Commonwealth University partnered for this uh, uh, research grant uh, funded by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And what we're looking at is, is, is a kind of a model in which you take a holistic look at the organization. And so one thing you look at is um, what are the policies? Uh, do, do you have the, po- the policies you need uh, that would be important to make the school safe in these cases. And, and the, the, the reality is that most schools don't have the policies they need. And the policies aren't just about no mis- inappropriate behavior between adults and students. They have to do with, with hiring. They have to do with supervising. They have to do with lots of things. Um, so we, so we look at their policies, then we look at, do they follow the policies? What's missing that could be added and what, and do they follow them? Then we look at training. What kind of training do they have? And everybody says we have training. We do the training, but in fact, yes, there's a ton of training that goes on in schools. We know that, but the kind of training that most people think is mandated reporting training, and they have that. Um, and that says that you, if you see some, a child uh, in any kind of danger, including sexual uh, uh, predation, you have to report. But that's not the training that helps people in schools understand how to code what they're seeing from their colleagues, how to listen to kids, how to know their own behaviors. So most places don't actually have thorough training that, that would be needed. Also, administrators don't have training on what they need to do in terms of the supervision, uh, because when we ask about, do you supervise? Do you go into classes? They say, yes, I watch their teaching twice a year, but that's not the kind of supervision we're talking about. We're talking about supervision in terms of boundary crossings, in terms of the ways that the interaction with kids go. We look at hiring practices. Um, What kind of hiring practice do you do? You'd be surprised how many people just take a, uh, a recommendation and don't call up and check on it. Um, so we, so that's a big issue. Uh, but, you know, when we talk about background checks, everybody says, oh yeah, we do the fingerprint, but very few educators who are crossing the line are in the system. Um, you won't find them there. You might find other employees there, uh, but not, or people who want to be employees there. So you have to call up and ask some questions of the, why is this person leaving? Why did, what was your experience with them there? So, so we, have, we have eight areas that we look at, uh, uh, and we provide, what we provide is um, uh, training from a company called Presidium, which does the training in the eight areas. 
So there's training there. And we provide the kind of a template about what, what do you have? What's missing? What could you do? Uh, and working with them and then seeing if down the line, those changes that happen uh, might make a difference in terms of people's attitudes, be, uh, their own reported behaviors, uh, and maybe even reported incidents. Um, uh, but we're, we're looking to see uh, uh, about changes. Now, these changes aren't very hard and they'd help in lots of other ways, just besides what this is, but they could really make a difference. So. So we're, we have this study and we're looking for districts that would like to be involved in this study. Um, they get the training free and it's normally very expensive training, but they get the training free the whole time of the study. Um, and they have the, the only thing we ask of the school is they complete a, a survey before at the beginning and at the end and that we get to do some um, interviews with some of the administrators and then we collect some documents to be able to give them that kind of feedback uh, about uh, uh, sort of a safety equation and where they may need to strengthen some areas. Um, so that's, that's, what, that's what we're doing for our study. And um, we believe based upon what we know about behaviors in schools that, that if these things were done and if we took it from an organizational perspective, looking at the structure of the organization and the systemic ways that things happen that these address those, and we believe that this will um, will reduce greatly the amount of inappropriate behavior from adults to students. Yeah, so, if thing, you're listening out there, and you're a school yeah. who wants to be in our study, we're here. Yeah, we'll continue to promote that too, Cheryl. Thanks. I, yeah, I think this is really fascinating. I love that you're taking a structural approach rather than an individual behavior approach because you. <clears throat> it's so easy to miss signs and things like that. But if everybody is paying attention and looking out for the welfare of our kids, then you're going to see these things um, come up. You're going to see things that are questionable and then you're going to address them and that will make all the difference. And rather than creating a monster, you can prevent someone from becoming a monster. And I think that's so, so important and valuable for what we're trying to do. And, um, I sent this out to my um, to my email list about the the presidium training that you're doing, and so hopefully some people will reach out to you, and I'll continue to promote that as well. I think that's that's something that we just need more support in this area because um, ten percent is way too much of our kids <laughs> being exposed yeah. uh, to this kind of mistreatment, and we really can do much better than that. Thank you. That, yeah, I mean, that translates into literally hundreds of thousands of children per yeah. year. Per year, actually... yeah, that's right. Um... All righty. Well, Cheryl, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure mm -hmm. to talk with you at length about this. Well, thank you for letting me be here. I really appreciate it. You have a great, you have a great broadcast. I listen to them. So, uh, oh, all uh, right, <laughs> a listener, we got one. You have a listener. You have a listener. You probably have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of listeners. But... Well, not quite, but it does put you ahead of most of my family. So there's that. <laughs> Well, I know yeah. that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, folks, for our, our faithful listeners out there, mm -hmm. you know what's coming next. That wraps up this episode of the pod of the Cyber Traps podcast. In the coming weeks, we'll continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, 
including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all of your favorite podcast apps. Please share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have guest question or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cyberchaps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this. Please leave us a five-star rating in your podcast service. We appreciate having you here with us and we'll see you next time. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master's schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.